0: Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the webinar today. First and foremost, we hope you and your families, colleagues, and friends are safe and healthy. SCNH Group remains committed to providing content and events like these as we continue to navigate the challenges around the business impact of COVID-19. We hope that today's content will provide additional insights on the many nuances of maximizing PPP loan forgiveness, whether you've already received one or are still holding out before applying. Just a few housekeeping items before we get started. We will be recording this webinar. It will be emailed to you by tomorrow, June 3rd. You can also visit schgroup.com and we'll have it posted on our website. We received a lot of really good questions ahead of the webinar and we're going to get through a lot of those today. Um, a lot of the tailored content for today's program is to address those questions. So thanks a lot. Um, And Jim, Greg, and James will also do their best to answer any questions that come up during the webinar as time permits. If your question is not answered and you're an SCNH client, please reach out to your SCNH engagement team for immediate assistance. If you're not an SCNH client, we'd love to introduce ourselves, and you're welcome to reach out to Jim, Greg, or James, and they'll point you in the right direction. Before I turn it over to our speakers, it's important to note that this information is very fluid the content and advice we are presenting today is our interpretation of what is available at the moment. And all businesses need to continue working closely with their bank, attorney, and accountants. As as we're recording this, we're anticipating some potential changes this week from the SBA or some additional legislation from Congress. So, Again, today is what we know as of, of as of now, but please continue to check back with us. Our webinar will be led by Jim Wilhelm, director in our tax practice, Greg Horning, director in our personal financial planning practice, and James Eaton, principal in our tax practice. And now I will turn it over to Jim who
1: will kick things off for us. Thanks, Carolyn. Welcome everyone and I hope that everyone is doing well. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being a client and or a friend of the firm. And thanks for folks who sent along uh, thoughtful questions prior to the webinar, which we think will help inform everyone who is attending. Um, We wanna get started with uh, our first slide, how to apply for a PPP loan. I know that many of you listening today already have a loan But there is still an opportunity to get a loan. Um, And if we look at the legislation that's currently passed by the House um, and perhaps headed to the Senate, it looks like one could apply for a loan, not just through June 30th, but potentially through December 31st. Um, In terms of what we know today, there appears to be somewhere between 130 and 140 billion dollars in funding still available. So it's time to grab the right banking partner um, and your accountant and potentially uh, legal counsel and look at getting that loan app in if you haven't done that yet. Um, You'll need to get your documentation in order. Um, Your bank should be able to help you with what you need and what format that will be and help you determine the loan amount. All the banks have gone through this not once but twice, so at this point, I think uh, they're in pretty good shape to give you good advice. If your loan is going to be over $2 million, but even if it's not, you're going to want to do a nice job documenting the need for the loan in terms of addressing concerns that the SBA was lending money to companies that really didn't, quote unquote, need it. Um, there's been a lot written about that. Um, so if you're over $2 million, you definitely need to do a thorough job here. Um, but if you have a very strong balance sheet and your loan is under 2000000 million, you'll still want to take that into account. Assuming you do go out and get a loan and it's new money, um, you just as we advised folks before, you'll want to think about the plan. Um, is the plan to spend all the money within the covered period and we'll talk about what that is and what that might be shortly um, and have all of it or as much as of, it, of it as can be forgiven. Or is there a better plan where some of the loan proceeds uh, remain and you have a very low interest, no collateral, no personal guarantee loan um, and have that those funds available to you two, three, six, eight, twelve 12 months from now. Um, Or maybe there's a a strategy where you do some of both. Um, So I think folks need to think about that. There are also other options out there um, for folks who either don't want a PPP loan or the loan is not enough to get them through these times. Um, There are some state and local grants still available, um, primarily local at this point, i.e. at the county level. There is the employer retention credit. Um, which is specifically uh, for employers who do not or cannot benefit from the PPP loan. There is payroll tax deferral, which allows employers to retain employer social security tax, effectively an interest-free loan from the government. For some period of time, there will soon be, we think, Um, A Main Street Lending Program, which has been very slow to kick off, which would be applicable for companies, again, who either could not get a PPP loan or chose not to. Then, of course, there's traditional bank or equity financing, um, which may get you through periods either now or after the PPP funding has gone away. I'm going to kick it over to Greg, who's going to walk us through the covered period and related implications.
2: Great, thanks, Jim. Um, so on covered period, this has been uh, a little bit of a moving target, but um, by and large, it's a relatively straightforward concept. Uh, the the spending of and and calculation of forgiveness related to the PPP loan proceeds. Is currently dependent on a 56-day period or an eight-week period that begins under the general rule begins with the date of initial funding. We know that um, there early on there may have been cases uh, prior to Treasury guidance where uh, funding may not have occurred in one lump sum. So what matters here is the date of initial funding when the business. First received cash from their bank, that begins the 56-day 56, 56 clock. Um, since that time, we now have guidance that uh, we that a business can elect, if they so desire, to match up their pay periods more uh, efficiently with the covered period. And this would allow, if if the employer has biweekly or more frequent Payroll periods. They can elect to use a 56-day alternate payroll-covered period, beginning with the first day of the payroll period beginning after initial funding. So, um, you know, in this, if you make this election, you're going to look at your funding date and determine what period, what next pay period begins immediately following your um, your funding date and begin your 56-day clock there. Importantly, if you make this election, um, the election, the covered period applicable to payroll will likely differ from the covered period that applies to other expenses. So again, this is only applicable to payroll costs, not to other costs. For other costs, your um, covered period remains the 56-day period beginning with initial funding. And also importantly, the election is not available um, as written under the um, under the guidance for any employer whose pay periods run um, less frequently than biweekly. Um, so, in in thinking about planning for this, uh, I think that when you have a, a biweekly or more frequent pay period it's going to behoove uh, many employers to look at which payrolls will get captured under either alternative, whether the, the general covered period or the old alternate covered period, um, and which would put you in the best position to maximize forgiveness. And that's that's going to be determined really on a, on a business or by business or employer by employer um, basis. So that's I'm going to cut my comments there, there'll, there'll be several questions we'll come to later on on covered period, but uh, we'll move on to uh, payroll costs that I think Jim is going to cover.
1: Thanks, Greg. So Greg talked about the 56-day the period, um, and in the IFR that came out a couple weeks ago, uh, as well as in the loan application, uh, the the verbiage that is used is payroll that is paid during your covered period and payroll that is incurred during your covered period. And so there is some debate out there as to whether or not a borrower could could allocate more than eight weeks of payroll into their covered period. If the calendar just fell your way and you had, as an example, a payroll date early in your 56 day period, and then on the back end of your 56 day period, you have a substantial amount of payroll incur that isn't paid until after your 56 day period, could you get eight and a half weeks, nine weeks, maybe even up to 10 weeks um, for some semi-monthly payroll employers? So there is, uh, I think some debate among commentators out there. Um, If we look at the wording, Uh, in the IFR and in the loan application, it says for payroll paid during the cover period and payroll incurred. It doesn't say paid and incurred or paid or incurred. So, more guidance from the SBA uh, would be helpful here, maybe some examples that would walk us through that. Um, It's been interesting. Um, The SBA is pretty much tried to ruin every weekend for the last month for accountants and those advising clients and, and companies uh, re- regarding PPP by issuing guidance Friday night around six or eight o'clock at night. Um this past Friday, they did, they did nothing. And one might think that maybe they were waiting to see what Congress was gonna do um, before they issued further guidance, um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So paid and incurred is still, uh, it's, we know more about it than we did when we provided our last webinar but we still have a question or two Um, but it is clear that everyone should get at least eight weeks of payroll during their 56 day period under the definition of paid and incurred which is helpful um more guidance uh should help answer the final question or two health plan costs um if you make your premium payments during your covered period it seems pretty clear that that would be eligible for forgiveness and and work. Um, What is not yet clear is what about self-insured health costs. Um, They haven't issued any guidance there. If you incur the cost during your 56-day period and you pay it the following pay period or the following bill cycle, it would seem that that would be includable. But self-insurance works a little differently than those of us who have uh, third-party insurance premiums that are due generally on a monthly or even more frequent basis. So still a question mark there. Retirement plan, um, frankly, a a huge black hole of guidance here. We don't know any more than we did uh, weeks ago, unfortunately. Um, In the application, in the IFR, it talks about retirement plan payments. So that might be instructive. Payments of what? And for what? No guidance. Is it your 2019 contribution that is due perhaps September 15th? Um, maybe, probably, if you paid it in your period. I feel pretty good about that. What about your 2020 expense? Um, some companies pay the match in a 401k plan as they go. That would seem like a reasonable expense that would be forgivable if paid during your covered period. And even if accrued and paid in the following, by the following pay date, that would seem to work. Um, for companies that wish to prepay some of their 2020 expense, would that qualify? Again, we don't have guidance. It would seem like 850 seconds of your 2020 estimated expense. If you pay that in a covered period, that seems pretty safe. Just to accrue it and not pay it, I think that's that's less likely to qualify, but again, we, we just don't have any guidance. Um, we've had some clients ask if they can prepay half of what they expect to pay for 2020 since we're getting close to the end of June. Um, again, if it's paid in the covered period, I feel better about it. In terms of what retirement plan costs would be, would qualify, You know, the 401k plan, set plan, those things all make sense. Uh, Deferred comp, ESOP, don't know yet. Um, Other types of supplemental uh, executive retirement plan. Contributions, again, we we don't have a definition there. Um, But I think a best practice would be if you're going to pay your 2019 contribution sometime this summer, you probably should get that paid during the cover period. Um, And I think a second best practice would be if you feel comfortable that you're going to make a 2020 contribution of a certain amount, having 850 seconds at a a minimum of that paid in during the recovery period would would be a good idea. Uh, State unemployment tax, I think that's pretty straightforward um, and not a big number for most people. Um, If it's paid during the period, you're good. If it's incurred in the final pay period and you pay it at the next bill cycle, which I presume would be the next time you file your unemployment report. That should count. New in the IFR was commentary around hazard pay and bonuses that employers might be giving to people uh, who are working now uh, during this environment, and that would be eligible and forgivable. Again, subject to the overall cap of fifteen thousand three hundred and eighty-five for any employee, any employee payments during the covered period. A couple of new things came out of the guidance. Um, One, a a new term of art owner employee. um, Two issues there. One, uh, for owner employees who own more than one business, compensation of 15,385 is capped across all businesses. No further definition there, but it would seem to me that you can't take 15,385 out of multiple companies if you are said owner-employee. There is a cap for owner-employees of 850 seconds of 2019 cash comp, which is similar to the rules in place for self-employed individuals and partners in a partnership. So I believe what the SBA is trying to do here is limit the ability for employee owner employees to increase their comp in 2020 over levels they had uh, in place in 2019. Again, you're still subject to the 15385 cap for the 56 day period um, or whichever whatever is actually paid. So best practice here owner employees should get 15385 paid during the covered period um, and make sure you're looking across multiple entities if that applies. As I mentioned, self-employed individuals and partners, your cash comp is capped at 850 seconds of your 2019 income. We are recommending that you take a draw during your covered period of that amount to make sure that gets qualified, you have proof of a payment and you have less of a story to tell down the road when you request forgiveness. And for those self-employed individuals and partners, your retirement plan and health plan costs um, do not count towards forgivable expense and for owner employees. It appears in the IFR language that retirement plan and health plan costs are capped at 2019 levels as opposed to 2020 levels. James is going to walk us through a couple slides on non-payroll costs now.
3: Thanks, Jim. So, Non-payroll costs were sort of uh in the original uh law, which seems like a lifetime ago, um, they were sort of just something that were, was left there to, to help the business to incentivize the business to do this. Right? The real core of the law was was the compensation replacement. Um, so <clears throat> there were some definitional things we can work our way through. Um and the first of those. Is what kind of costs are eligible? Okay, so non payroll costs are made up chiefly of three things um, a term called mortgage interest, which we'll talk about, rent or lease payments, and utility payments. So, mortgage interest, normally um, as defined in sort of all tax uh, law, uh, has for years and years uh, taken the definition of having to be collateralized against real estate. However, the SBA and Treasury and and, uh, the um, additional guidance we've received is now makes clear that this really is, is business interest on real or personal property. So that's interest on debt incurred before February 15th, 2020, and it does not include prepayments or the principal portion of payments. So if we've got a business and we own our own building, then the mortgage interest on the the mortgage for the building um, is a qualified non-payroll cost. Great. That's real property. The personal property angle here is if you've got a a loan for autos, over the road trucks, um, maybe even copiers and and office equipment, um, then in a scenario like that, as long as you've got that note and that, that loan was, was papered um, prior to February 15th, 2020, then the interest, again, the interest portion of those payments is a qualified non-payroll cost. The pay down of the principal is not a qualified um, cost. So similarly, that's if we own real estate or if we own tangible personal property within the business. What if we rent those things? again then the the rent payment or the lease payment um, for our real or personal property um, is a qualified non-payroll cost as long as the lease was in place before february 15th 2020 so again if we've got um a building um got a warehouse in our business we're paying ten thousand dollars a month in rent for for a lease payment hey that's great that's going to be an includable non-payroll cost What if we've got an auto, we've got an over-the-road truck, we're in a a, a long-term lease there, but we don't own it, right? It's still on the books of of the leasing company or the original owner. Well, in that case, the lease payment um, is is a qualified non-payroll cost. Both of those, for the most part, are relatively straightforward. Utility payments, um, which seem sort of uh, should be relatively straightforward, have some fungibility. So, We look at utility payments and we say, electricity, gas, water, those are the things that the the law sort of said, hey, those things are traditional utility payments. um, And that makes a lot of sense. But then we get into telephone and internet. I know we had a question about security systems. Um, Those are a little bit tricky, right? And it's really the the regulation, as the guidance has, has sort of put together, says, you know, we are looking at the distribution the the supply of these things Um, so we had some questions maybe about hey what about uh if water is a utility what about um, a water filtration system and i think that's a case where likely um, the asset the filtration system is not a qualified non-payroll cost but the actual provision of the water is also the application um, the forgiveness application that came out recently um, in, inserts the term transportation, and we get very little guidance on what transportation is and why that would be considered a utility. Um, there's an interim final rule that gives an example, and it says, uh, as an example, the gasoline that you put into a business auto used for business would qualify as a utility payment. So the auto itself wouldn't be a utility, but the gas, maybe the oil that you put into it could. So you'd say, hey, what about the, the auto itself? Hey, if it's a lease, then that lease payment is going to qualify in the, the line item above, the lease payments for real or tangible personal property. And if you purchased the auto, then the interest portion um, of the, the monthly payment would qualify as a non-payroll cost. So definitionally, that's where we are in the definition of non-payroll costs. Okay. So then we look at um, uh, some of the, the same sort of definitional questions about what costs count, right? So eligible costs, as currently defined, are amounts paid during the covered period, excluding the prepayments we talked about that are specifically disallowed above, great. But there are also costs that are incurred during the covered period but paid on or before the next regular billing date. This sounds a lot like the payroll discussion that Jim was having just a couple of minutes ago that we're saying, hey, if you've got um, if you've got some bills that, that are paid inside the, the cover period, that's great. And then if you've got expenses that are incurred, but you can't pay them, right? You don't know what your electric bill is gonna be until you get the electric bill, what do you do? So let's think about that example. And again, this will parallel maybe some of the things Jim talked about in, in the payroll discussion let's just say our utility bill, our electric bill, um, runs on a, a calendar month, okay? So we come along and we get a bill, uh, the, the the monthly measurement period ends at the end of March, bill comes on April 5th and it's due in 10 days, so we pay it on April 15th. Okay, great. And if, if we got funded from our PPP in the third week of April, maybe that's April 25th, well, that payment on the 15th wasn't inside the covered period. Okay, so the payment that I make in March, I'm sorry, in May and in June will be covered. But my payroll period, uh, my covered period ends at some point in the middle of a month, and I don't get that bill until early in the next month. That's where we say, okay, the the amounts you pay during the covered period pretty obviously count as non-payroll costs. But a prorated portion of that that final kind of bill for the half month, as long as you pay it on time, on or before your next regular billing date, that will also that prorated portion that number of days analysis will count as a non-payroll cost. So this is an area where the current regulation is a little bit uh, more clear and gives a little bit more flexibility to the business owner than what was um, maybe originally in the law. And I think Greg's going to talk to us about um, some additional analysis here.
2: Yeah, so um, we're going to move and talk a little bit about um, quickly about the reductions in forgiveness that might apply. Um, there are really um, three areas. The first is relatively straightforward. Any any advance payments of uh, on an idle uh, loan that was received. That's generally the ten thousand dollars or in some cases, a thousand dollars a head that um, was paid in the form of an advance payment that's going to come right off the top um, on the application for forgiveness and and will be applied, uh, you know, effectively so you don't get a, a double benefit of of effectively a grant and a forgivable loan up to the amount of the uh, advance payment that you received. Second, um, there are. Um, also, potential reductions in forgiveness as a result of a reduction in uh, FTEs, and or um, reductions in compensation beyond 25% uh, for for any employee that had an annual pay rate of $100,000 or or less. So, um, in ca- we had a number of questions come in about how do I calculate FTEs. Um, that. Hopefully I can clear up some of those questions right here. The, any employee who uh, worked previously a 40 hour or higher work week is counted as 1.0 FTEs and any anybody that's working less or, or average less than 40 hours a week during the, the testing period would be counted as either, at your election, either a fraction based on the actual average hours worked divided by 40 or uh, um, by election, you can choose to to treat any part-time employee as a .5 FTE. So, in many cases, um, you can make you can do some analysis of of that uh, FTE count and make a determination as to w- which option is better for you at your election. Um, second, the co- with respect to compensation. Um, reductions. That again only applies to employees who were, um, previously paid at a rate of less than $100,000 annualized. Um, and to the extent that you reduce their comp, um, by more than 25%, there will be a, a reduction in forgiveness. However, the new guidance, um, that we've received allows and provides that there, you won't be penalized for twice for the same employee so for example if you had an employee who um, you cut back their hours and as a result they their compensation also was reduced by more than 25 percent you don't get penalized twice by that same employee so um that's a that was a favorable guidance or taxpayer friendly uh guidance that we received just uh, a couple weeks ago the um we also have uh, another friendly guidance uh, provision that allows um that f t e reductions are not going to be imposed if the um if the employer made an offer to rehire the employee right but the um so if you if you laid off or reduced hours for an employee. Um, but later went back, tried to rehire that employee, or tried to increase their hours, um, and they, and that was a written offer, and the employee uh, did not take advantage or did not did not accept the offer. That that individual situation will not be counted against you in the in the forgiveness calculation. So, in order to qualify that qualify for that provision, you you're going to need. To have a written offer of rehire or reinstatement at the same prior hours and pay rate, you're going to need um, to show that the employee or former employee rejected the offer. Uh, you're going to need, need to maintain those records and be able to sh- to, to provide those to, uh, to prove that down the road. And in, in addition, one of the more uh, interesting provisions here is you need to uh, notify the State unemployment office that uh, the employee chose not to uh, take advantage of a rehire offer. And the final comment in this section, really on um, with respect to FTE reductions, if you have a, an employee who is who you terminated for cause, uh, voluntarily resigned, or voluntarily reduced hours. Those uh, employee reductions or comp reductions will not, those FTE reductions will not be counted against you in the forgiveness calculation. Um, So, if an an employee has reduced their hours and comp is reduced as a result, only the impact of the FTE reduction is applied to reduce the loan forgiveness. The the fact that the employee's comp dropped by more than 25% can be ignored. with that i think jim has some comments on um, what we might be looking you know the biggest questions we have remaining and then we're going to jump right into
3: I think we can think just a little bit about the application process the forgiveness application process (laughs) and some of the logistics that will go into that briefly um as of today given the way the law and the regulations are, are set up we're anticipating that the banks should sort of have the bandwidth and, and some process together um late in june to start working through applications and the math there sort of says you know the earliest uh grants uh earliest awards were coming out in in middle to late april so by middle to late june hopefully the banks are, are starting to accept the applications and presumably famous last words um the banks will be better uh, prepared to accept um, the the forgiveness applications than they were for the loan applications. When we look at applying for forgiveness, there are a couple of timing strategies we might consider. One is in coordination with tax deferrals, payroll tax deferrals. uh, You might be uh, beneficial to those who have taken advantage of payroll tax deferrals to delay the application of the loan forgiveness, for loan forgiveness. In order to maximize that, that um, deferral, another one is the concept of sort of safety in numbers, um, sort of like filing your tax return in March. If a lot of applications are, are filed sort of at the same time as people are trying to get um, forgiveness worked out, then maybe there's less of a chance of the IRS or someone treasury SBA coming back and looking at um, in more detail um, at the, the forgiveness application um so we'll see and and jim's comments i think in a few minutes will have some impact on maybe some of these timing issues as far as the documentation goes for uh employers with employees um the guidance and, and the regulations have given more and more color on this over time but certainly payroll tax returns are going to be fundamental to that now whether or not the payroll tax returns uh, line up with the covered period and the the costs that are um, payroll costs that are includable is debatable. And may may work in some situations. Likely won't work uh, to the dollar in other situations. Um, but that'll be a, a core area um, where you'll need to provide payroll and unemployment type reports to support people on payroll and how much they were making. Um, checks for outside items like health and health insurance, retirement plan payments, those sort of things. I think we'll also add to that um, there is some specificity in in the interim final rule regarding utility payments um those same sort of uh rent and lease obligations they'll actually want um on a, on a business mortgage they want to see the amortization schedule the loan documents with a date prior to february 15th 2020 so there's going to be a fair amount of documentation that'll go into kind of a pile that'll be uh, supplied there um the FTE computation may be very straightforward for some folks, uh, some businesses where you have eight or ten or twenty people that are all full time. That'll be fairly straightforward. Um, for more nuanced um, folks with more part time or with seasonality, with uh, larger headcount, the the analysis may be a little bit more detailed. And payroll register with with a, a cover sheet talking about how the math actually works may be really recommended. Um, and then sort of anything where um, if you're making a payment during the period that you want to count, you want to think about having cancel checks uh, or if nothing else, you know, kind of a, a bank statement showing that going through and clearing. And if you're going to have the accrual or the the kind of incurred and paid before the next um, bill date, then you want to have that, that next bill and you want to sort of have the check and say, hey, here's where it was. This is the date this is the period it covered and this is when, when I paid it um, to support those, those costs that are coming outside of the, the 56 day covered period. Um, our recommendation is you plan to keep this in a safe place for a long time. Um, SBA has said that they will um, examine all files for greater than $2 million, but they've also left the door open to say files smaller than that um, will be examined as well. We don't have any statistics on, on how likely that is. Um, but they've got a long window of that. So keeping all the support, probably photocopies um, or copies of all of your support, all of the app from right from the application right through the the uh, forgiveness is really um, our recommendation. So I think at this point, we'll ask Jim to talk to us about a few of the open items, a few of the things we need to keep in mind as we move forward.
1: Thanks, James. A um, couple things to add maybe on the loan application itself. I believe we have a link on our website on the resource center which is a good place for people to keep an eye on over the next couple of weeks. Um, whether we hear from Congress or the SBA, we will get things out there, hopefully in a readable and concise format uh, for our clients and friends of the firm uh, within a day or two. Um, and I wanna to continue to thank our marketing department, who uh, is rowing right alongside uh, all of us in uh, keeping our clients up to date. A couple of notable things on that app one is it expires. October 31st, which kind of makes sense because initially PPP was supposed to go away at the end of the year. So if you need to apply by October 31st, the bank has 60 days to rule on forgiveness or make a decision on forgiveness that gets you to the end of the year. That's a note. One question on the application asks how many employees you have at the date of the forgiveness application. And that's been a question folks have asked us several times if we rehire people at june 30 do we need to keep them on the payroll there is no guidance on that specifically but they are asking that question on the application for a reason um what's out there so i'm going to get back to congress in a second maybe i'll work backwards um sorry about jumping around so we haven't heard from sba in in a while um i'm not sure i missed them but you know, we think we should get guidance. We're supposed to get it this week. I think they're waiting on Congress, as we said. Um, Speaking of Congress, they initially were looking to make forgiven expenses deductible. The IRS had ruled they would not be deductible under Code Section 265. Um, I have not heard about any progress on that legislation. We will keep you posted. As mentioned earlier, We would love to have some definitional help on things such as retirement retirement plan costs, transportation, defined owner-employee, confirmation that related party arrangements are okay. We haven't seen where they aren't. Um, And so I'm someone who, in the absence of rules, likes to move forward. Um, Will CAM charges count for rent and some other items? Um, Obviously the banks are gonna be giving a borrower's guidance on you're putting your, data, your forgiveness application through a portal, what format they'll be looking for, what records they'll want to make this a smooth process. There are over or roughly 4.5 million PPP loans outstanding that banks need to uh, make a decision on forgiveness within 60 days. Um, so that sounds like busy season for the banks this summer, this fall. Uh, Depending, So um, you'll want to have a nice conversation with your bank to make this go as smoothly as possible. Now uh, for Congress, and then we're going to jump into some questions. Um, There's a House Bill 7010 that's been approved 417 to one. I didn't look to see who the one was. Um, That bill will go to the Senate this week. They may act on it. They may act on their own bill and then go to conference after that. The bill itself moves the current period from eight weeks to 24 weeks. It changes the 75-25 split payroll versus non-payroll to 60-40. However, the 60% will now be a cliff. If you don't get to 60% of spend being payroll, you get zero forgiveness, which is a change. The June 30 date for restoring payroll and restoring FTE count will be moved to December 31st. You could also apply for loans up to December 31st under the house bill. And the eight weeks to 24 weeks is kind of the biggest thing. Um, And that may be good and that may be bad. For companies that have already had their money, have spent most of their money and are using it to keep payrolls you know where they were before this crisis hit, um, and have done all of that, and would be getting probably full max, you know, full forgiveness or very close to that. They may want to, and the House bill allows to elect out of the 24 weeks, and the reason would be you have to maintain your payrolls for 24 weeks. Then, but you're get you were given two and a half weeks, two and a half months. I'm sorry, of payroll funding. But now you would need to retain payroll levels um, and headcount for over five months almost six months that might be a challenge Um, and pushing that the measurement date from June 30 to December 31st could also be a challenge depending on how companies think their businesses will do later in the year relative to now. So those are kind of the highlights. Again, please keep an eye on our resource center. Um, We are adding a blog. Even though it's slowing down a little bit, it's still once or twice a week. And as soon as guidance comes out and or Congress acts on the PPP, uh, we'll call it extender or flexibility legislation, um, we will get something posted there. All right, so let's jump to questions. Um, I think I'm going to start. And we'll talk about payroll. Um, So first question was payroll to family members. Uh, Again, related parties, we think it's fine. Um, You have to watch for your caps. You need to look at uh, owner employee caps, which are now based on 2019 as opposed to 2020, but paying family members should be fine. There's nothing in there uh, in the legislation or The guidance from Treasury that talks about that. Um, new employees. If you hire a new employee now um, or recently, are they included? Yes. They do not have to have been working for you earlier this year or last year. Let's see. There was a question regarding uh 75% rule. So I know some people are thinking. You must spend 75% of the loan proceeds on payroll in order to get forgiveness. And then there's a question whether it's 75% of the forgiveness has to be a payroll cost. And the answer is of the amount forgiven, 75% must be used for payroll costs. The remaining piece can be for non-payroll costs. You can have partial forgiveness under the current rules And if all of your loan is not forgiven, um, you would then have a new loan with the SBA subject to the terms uh, outlined previously. Severance pay will qualify. Um, Again, you have to watch your cap. Um, For any employee, compensation over $15,385 during the covered period will not count, so you're capped at that number. Payroll is paid or incurred, Um, so you start with your first payroll after the loan proceeds were received and you can accrue some of the payroll, the portion that was earned during the end of your eight-week period as long as it's paid in the following pay period. We talked about the FTE Calc, that was a question. Independent contractor spend does not count. For part-time salaries, that counts, obviously, and you have to go through your FTE Calc, uh, New Employees Calc. If you add employees, God bless you, that counts. Um, Transportation, we believe, as James alluded to earlier, um, so far all we know is it's fuel used in company vehicles. Uh, Hopefully we get guidance on whether that will be More than that, um, for FTEs, Greg talked about if employees were fired, they quit, they refuse to come back, that will not hurt you in terms of the headcount reduction calculation. And I think my final payroll question really just gets back to incurred and paid. And again, if you're final payroll during the 56-day period falls outside of that uh, time frame. you still can include the portion that was earned through your 56-day period as long as that is paid in the following normal pay date. James?
3: Super. So I think we have a few questions about non-payroll <laughs> um cost and we've covered a number of them, but we'll run through just a few things. Um so uh I think Jim has discussed it and and we've discussed it with respect to how do we count this, but some folks have said, okay, so are we on a cash versus an accrual basis? And that sounds like a very accountant sort of thing. Um I think what we think of internally is it's sort of a modified cash basis. It's cash basis except for special rules that allow you to essentially accrue some expenses at the end of the period. Um, There's been a a fair amount of kind of uh, ambiguity and questions about transportation. And so again, it's a sort of a very definitional question, right, so people say, hey, what about um, the purchase of a vehicle? Well, the purchase of a vehicle likely is is not a non-payroll cost, but let's think about that. If it has interest on it, then the interest would be on um, a a note which would be a business note, so the interest could be deductible as long as the note was in place um, before February fifteenth um, the purchase itself the 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 paying for an auto um, is a principal uh, activity right so we know in the definition of business mortgage that the principal portion doesn't count equally I guess many uh, auto uh, dealers uh, now have zero percent financing in in today's world so uh, the interest may be less and less of an, of an issue over time. There was a great question about is uh, a security system uh, a utility? Um, I'm sort of inclined to think, yes, it's the provision of a service. Um, if you're not buying physical hardware, then it's then it's sort of a monthly bill for the distribution provision of a service. So I think that one you can probably think about. Um, there are a few questions about uh, payroll costs, and we can just hit a couple of those maybe real quick. Um, someone asks, Is severance or separation compensation forgivable? um severance pay is I think in the definition of qualified payroll cost. so that one is pretty straightforward um and there was another question that that kind of came through on FICA versus Medicare. what to know there? um, I think the important thing to consider there is that the employee portion of FICA and Medicare is includable both in the application um, for the PPP funds and for the forgiveness, but the employer's portion isn't. And that's essentially because the employer's matching um, social security and Medicare contribution isn't wages, it's payroll taxes. And so it's an entity level tax and that's not wages. So that one doesn't count. Um, And I think equally, um, unemployment is a tax based on the employment of people, so that should be a qualifying uh, payroll cost, Um, so you have less to worry about there. Um, Just touching base again on on vehicles, the question about maintenance. Should maintenance count as a utility non-payroll cost um, under the heading of transportation? We have really one, not even full sentence, it's a sentence fragment. It's between a comma and a period. It's just a little fragment that says. Uh, As an example of transportation costs, gasoline in your vehicle would count. Um, So the gasoline fine would count. Um, The maintenance doesn't seem to be the type of thing that's included in any of the other definitions of non-payroll costs. Um, So we wouldn't think that maintenance um, or repairs would be includable utilities uh, from that perspective. And and shared payroll costs. I'm sorry, shared office costs, um, you know, if they're rent, if they're included in rent, then I think that probably is, is a rent and that's a non-payroll cost. If you have uh, cam charges, that's a little bit trickier, but if they come through and they're, they're invoiced as utilities, then I think you have a better chance to say, hey, that's the, the um, electric or the water or the, the gas, the heat, whatever else it is, for my portion of common areas. So I think that makes sense. Greg, what do you have?
2: So I'm going to pick off a couple that came in online while we were speaking, real quick. Um, first, I don't think we've talked a lot about independent contractors and self-employed who file Schedule C. Uh, there was a question. There are two questions here. One, as an independent contractor, does rent for my home office count, and is it forgivable? Um, and then, secondly, how do I document as a sole proprietorship? Sole proprietorships are um, relatively straightforward. The um, The forgiveness calculation with respect to a sole proprietor uh, is going to be with respect to the payroll cost assuming you have no employees other than the sole proprietor the forgiveness is going to be 850 seconds of line 31 of your 2019 schedule c that you file or will file with the irs so um, that that's been pretty clear from um relatively early on in addition to the 850 seconds of line 31 of Schedule C from last year, you can you can get forgiveness on other costs, non-payroll costs. So that would be your mortgage interest, uh, rent, uh, utilities. But um, for those, for many of those self-employed individuals, uh, that mortgage interest or rent would be their potentially a home office, and that comes to the to the second question on uh, is home office rent. Forgivable, and so for that, we would be looking at eight fifty seconds of um, those costs rent mortgage interest, utilities, eight fifty seconds of those costs that should appear on a filed form eighty eight twenty nine again, I think the the guidance has said you know you need to have filed an eighty eight twenty nine with your two thousand nineteen tax return or plan to do so um, with in order to support that. That uh, forgiveness calculation. Another question that came in um, with respect to covered period: If you elect the alternate uh, payroll covered period, does that apply to benefit costs? Well, benefit costs are part of the de- part of the definition of payroll costs. So, if you elect the alternate covered period for payroll, then I would expect that your benefit costs would also be subject to that alternate covered period. But um, when I when I made the reference to other costs, I mean non-payroll, which would be mortgage interest, uh, rent, business rents, or utilities. Um, and finally, another question on a comment I made about idle. Um, if you received a, a grant um, advance an advance payment um, under idle, which is not required to be paid back. Yes, that means that if you received a five thousand dollar IDLE grant and you received a twenty thousand dollar PPP loan, um, your forgiveness on the PPP loan would be limited to fifteen thousand um, dollars because you don't you don't you don't have to pay back the IDLE grant. Um, a number of questions came in, uh, and, and by the way, folks, we are. I know we're coming up on. Twelve o'clock. I think we have a number of questions we're going to try to get to. We may go a little bit over, and if that happens, um, and you need to jump off the call at at noon, um, you know, we we are recording this, and we'll be posting it to uh, our uh, resource center, so you can always come back and listen to the tail end if you need to jump off. But a number of questions came in about uh, alternate covered period and payroll. Uh, So. You know, somebody asks. Alternate covered period begins 419. Did not furlough any employees, but reduced wages to 75% of base for some period of time, and then jump them back up to 100%. Well, based on that information, it doesn't sound like there would be any reductions in forgiveness. But um, I'm I'm going to say that you know I wouldn't make that assumption. The the, comp- the computations under Reductions and FTE calcs are uh, you know, somewhat complex, and looking at specific periods of time. So, I'm going to encourage you to do some calculations to, to ensure that you truly didn't reduce FTEs or compensation. Um, self-insured. This is a question I think Jim uh, tried to address a little bit. That there isn't much guidance on self-insured health insurance claims. There are people out there. There are advisors that believe that. You should um be able to claim uh or get benefit for claims that are paid during your covered period others are saying others are saying, well, maybe it's cobra rates applied to your census during the the covered period. All we can say on that is stay tuned, hope for guidance um talk to your bank because the the bank at the end of the day is the is the arbiter on these forgiveness calculations um, so somebody asked. Look back period. A company had an employee quit and take another job. Company hired new employees such that there were no changes in FTEs. Will this resigned, terminated employee need to be included in the salary wage deduction calculation? Um, so, the worksheet in the forgiveness application includes only employees who were paid during the covered period. Uh, so, as a result, their, their termination, the termination of the, the prior employee, should not result in any penalty for. The reduction of compensation by more than 25 percent. However, the termination would result in a reduction of forgiveness, <clears throat> except for the fact that you replace those positions completely. So, as long as you brought your FTs, your average FTEs back up um, by the, the June 30 date, uh, in that instance, I would not expect to see a reduction in forgiveness. Um, somebody asked, How strict is the eight week forgiveness period from when the funds are transferred? If we received money early May, can rent for July be eligible for forgiveness? Well, the eight-week period is absolute. Now, for payroll purposes, you can choose that alternate um, uh, covered period, but until Congress makes a change, uh, and except for that that alternative to use the payroll uh, alternate covered period, you have eight weeks beginning on the day of uh, loan funding. So in, in this question, if you paid your May and June rent within the covered period, and you also pay your July rent in the covered period, we believe that all three of those payments would be captured. However, if you pay your July rent after the end of the covered period, you, we we also we still believe that you should be able to get a portion of that July rent. that And that pro rata portion would be based on the number of days in July um, that 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 rent rent payment applies to up to the date where your covered period ends um, I think that should do it there there there's a very complex question where um maybe maybe I'll just touch on this briefly you have we have an employer that has three separate um, payrolls, so a week a weekly payroll and two separate um, groups of employees that get paid biweekly. Here, um, you know, this is like any other situation, um, except that you need to evaluate each group separately. So in their situation, they say the loan was funded on April 22nd, so from April 22nd, if we count forward 56 days, you're gonna have uh, till June 16th to cover your, uh, for your covered period. So any payrolls for any of those groups that are paid, that are actually paid, between April twenty second and June sixteenth would be included. In addition, for each of those groups, there may be um, under our interpretation a an accrual for a number for some number of days between the date of the the, the final payroll that's paid in the covered period and June 16th, where you can um, include the accrued payroll as long as that payroll is paid no later than the next regularly scheduled pay date. I'm going to stop there. Jim, James, do you want to jump in on any other miscellaneous questions?
1: I have a couple um, here that I'll run through under retirement plan and benefits. um, Again, we touched on it briefly, 401k match for 2019. If it's paid in a covered period, I think you're good. An accrual for 2020, not sure yet. Prepaying some of 2020 during the cover period again, I think it is reasonable. Um, benefit plans that would count uh, as a payroll cost would be health, disability and dental. We also think um, HSA is the employer portion would also count. Um, for we have one question here where if someone made their 401k matching contribution in March, would that be included? And I think the answer to that question would be no, because it was not paid during the covered period. You could not have a covered period that began in March. So since it wasn't paid and the verbiage in the guidance to date is payment for retirement plan, I think uh, paying that in March is not going to help you here. However, you can think about making a payment towards 2020 uh, if you think. James, you want to grab a couple more before we uh, sign off? I think that's great. Yep, there are a few really good ones here. So
3: uh, um, one of the real fundamental questions here, someone says, hey, I paid, uh, I paid three um, rent payments during the covered period, right? I, I had one that was due right after I got my uh, funds, and I paid the next one. And then before the end of my 56-day period, I paid another one. I got three in there. Um, does that count? I think that really goes back to some of the fundamental ambiguity we see here. I that was probably one of the reasons why the original law said paid and incurred. Um, but it seems that there is no disallowance for prepayment of rent um, in the current law. So I think you probably can get that as long as you're paid inside the 56-day period. Um so that's probably beneficial to business owners. Um Another question. Hey, I've got monthly IT server and cloud hosting costs, and do you think those fit into the utilities category? Um, not surprisingly, we don't have a, a an exhaustive list of everything that's utilities, um, but I think my thought process there is that's that's similar to um, internet um, provision, uh, and and you might have a chance there. In the in the absence of of greater detail, um, I think you got a chance there. That's an okay one. A really interesting question that someone posted is Hey, we said that lease payments um, count as non payroll costs. What about capital leases? Um, I've seen a few articles, and I don't know if you guys have seen anything that I have, and a few articles that uh, essentially take the position that capital leases really aren't leases for the purposes of, of, of PPP and that really it's a financing arrangement. And so what you really fall into is looking at it like a purchase, where the purchase of your equipment is not um, a non-payroll cost, but if there's an interest function baked into that number that the interest function would, would be a non-payroll cost. Um, So that's one where we have less than no uh, guidance in in the regulations. Um, What do you guys think? You seen anything that's, that's interesting in that vein?
1: I mean, I have seen, you know, the SBA is not the IRS. And so, you know, oftentimes capital leases are characterized that way for either generally accepted accounting principle purposes or tax purposes, neither of which typically apply to the SBA as it relates to lending. So that's actually, um, that's a tough one. Um, You know, if you explain it to a 10-year-old, it it looks and smells like a a lease, right? It says lease on it, um, but you could argue economically it's a financing uh, you know, situation. So tough one. Here's a
2: relatively quick one that somebody just posted a few minutes ago. Can, can you confirm that independent contractors are not allowed to claim health premiums and contributions to SEP retirement accounts? Well, um, yes, for an independent contractor, so this is likely a Schedule C filer, um, assuming that they don't have any employees in their in their business other than the self-employed individual, um, we believe it's clear that health insurance premiums, self-employed health insurance premiums, and SEP contributions for the owner are uh, are not includable. Again, we're back to the 850 seconds of um, Schedule C from 2019. Uh, if if the employer if you do have employees on schedule c that you're uh, that you're paying and you're making employer contributions to their health premiums and or iras or SEP iras or, or 401ks those uh, contributions for those employees only would be includable if paid in the covered period all right folks what we're going to do is
0: we're going to um We're going to stop this for today. We've seen a ton of questions coming in. I'm going to work with the team to to get some questions answered. Um, But thank you very much to everyone for joining today. Thank you very much to Jim, Greg, and James. We definitely encourage everyone to visit and bookmark our Coronavirus Resource Center for the most up-to-date content we have published. Um, This page is continually being updated with new content as more information comes out particularly when there is more definitive word from the sba or congress Uh, again we will email out the recorded webinar by tomorrow so keep an eye out for it on behalf of all of us here at scnh group we wish you your families your businesses and your colleagues the best as we all look ahead and if we may be of any assistance please don't hesitate to reach out to us Uh, stay safe stay safe stay healthy and thanks for being with us today take care everyone thanks all See you folks. Thank you.